Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. Thanks again for listening. A dozen miles northeast of his imperial showpiece of Kalhu, Asher Nasser Paul II built a second city named Imgur Enlil or Enlil Agreed. Why it was founded isn't entirely clear, but two of the city's major monuments were a royal palace and, directly adjacent, a temple to Mamu, the Assyrian god of dreams. Not just any dreams, but of meaningful dreams regarded as capable of influencing the future. The goddess Mamu began her existence as daughter of the Akkadian sun god Utu and his wife Aya, the morning maker or goddess of the dawn. But she was also sometimes viewed as male, which was apparently the case at the temple of Imgur Enlil. Among the temple's more striking features were a set of massive cedar gates 20 feet high. As historian John E. Curtis relates, the gates were partly covered and reinforced by embossed and chased strips of bronze, eight on each side, nailed to the faces of the doors and around the doorposts. They also featured a sheathing of bronze running from the top to the bottom of the free edge of each door, each of which held an inscription. The gates of the Mamu temple were one of three such pairs of gates raised in the city. And, remarkably, bronze bands from all three gates have made their way down to us. The bands from the Mamu temple are currently housed in the Mosul Museum, while the remains of the others are on display in the British Museum and the Istanbul Archaeology Museum. Since Imgur Enlil is more commonly known by its Syriac name of Balawat, what we're talking about are the famous Balawat Gates. Many bronze bands cover events from Shalmaneser's reign. Scenes from his earliest regnal years include his conquest of Nairi lands and the king receiving tribute from Ithobaal of Tyre. They also record the tribute of Sangara of Carchemish, 
and give snapshots of Shalmaneser's conflict with King Ahuni of Bitadini. On a band associated with the current year, 853 BC, Shalmaneser notes that I captured the city of Parga and Ada, a city of Urahalina in Hamath. Then I captured Karkar, the city of Urahalina in Hamath. Luckily, we're not completely reliant on this single, very terse entry. As I mentioned, the Assyrians were obliterating the recent Dark Age with a plethora of period documentation. Royal annals from Asur and Kalhu, inscriptions on various statues and monuments, and, in the not-too-distant future, an extremely important royal obelisk. They were pretty much carving an inscription into anything that wasn't currently moving. If you were a slow page in the Assyrian court, you'd better watch out for that stylus. The most valuable source for this particular era is a monument called the Kirkstele, which records the military activities of Shalmaneser III up through 853 BC. And it's the Kirkstele that gives a detailed record, or at least the official Assyrian version, of exactly what happened after Shalmaneser burned the city of Karkar on the lower Orontes River. As the fires continued to rage in the background, Shalmaneser witnessed the approach of an enormous host, a vast alliance of, according to his tally, around 60,000 soldiers, including cavalry and chariotry, under command of 11 Syrian kings. He records the forces as 1,200 chariots, 1,200 cavalry, and 20,000 soldiers belonging to Hadad Azer of Damascus, 700 chariots, 700 cavalry, and 10,000 soldiers belonging to Urahalina of Hamath, 2,000 chariots, and 10,000 soldiers belonging to Ahab the Israelite. 500 soldiers belonging to the Guaeans, a thousand soldiers belonging to the Musraeans, ten chariots and ten thousand soldiers belonging to the Irkanateans, two hundred soldiers belonging to Matinu Bail the Arwadite, two hundred soldiers belonging to the Usanateans, Thirty chariots and one thousand soldiers belonging to Adunu Bail, the Cheyennean. One thousand camels belonging to Gindibu, the Arabian. And one thousand soldiers belonging to Basha, son of Rehubi, the Ammonite. So, some familiar names and places, others a bit more obscure. Just to unpack things a bit, the Gwaeans likely refer to the Cilician territory of Quay, while the Musraeans, often misinterpreted as Egyptians, were likely from the land of Masura near Quay, and apparently allied with its king. The Irkonateans were from Tel Arca in Phoenicia, while the Usanateans hailed from the region of Mount Lebanon. The Cheyennaeans came from the coastal region of Amuru, north of Phoenicia. 
In parallel inscriptions, Shalmaneser refers to the subset of forces from Cilicia, Amuru, and Phoenicia as representing the kings of the sea coast. Taking all that into account, we can break things down into various groups. You've got the Damascenes, Hamathites, Israelites, and Ammonites. You've got the Cilician forces of Quay and Masura. You've got a significant contingent from Phoenicia and Amuru, including forces from Arwad, Tel Arca, Mount Lebanon, and Shyanea, though no contingents from Tyre, Sidon, Byblos, or other major Phoenician cities. And lastly, you've got the very first record of Arabian forces fighting on camelback, possibly from the region of Edom. Judah and Moab are notable exceptions, though, as I mentioned last episode, Israelite forces may have included allied Judeans and conscripted Moabites, who just didn't get broken out separately. The bulk of the defensive coalition were foot soldiers, but there were also around 4,000 chariots along with about 2,000 cavalry. And since military cavalry is a relatively new phenomenon, I wanted to have a quick discussion. The first recorded use of the term, at least that I could find, was in the annals of Shalmaneser's grandfather, Tukulti Ninurta II. The term came into more common use during the reigns of Asher Nasserpal II and Shalmaneser III. According to historian Tomas Deso, the first depictions of cavalry as a fighting arm appear in the palace reliefs of Ashurnasirpal II. But it's also obvious that the first Near Eastern cavalry units weren't established by him, but that other local peoples also had cavalry at the time. Among the earliest employers of cavalry were probably the horse-breeding peoples of the Zagros and Armenian mountains. And it's likely that the use of cavalry initially developed somewhere in the triangle formed by Assyria and these two locations. One of Asher Nasserpal's early reliefs depicts the use of cavalry in combat. As Deso relates, the image shows a pair of cavalrymen, one an archer wearing a pointed helmet, while another, equipped with rounded bronze shield, sword, and possibly lance, and wearing a hemispherical helmet with ear flaps, holds the reins of both horses. The approach, one warrior and one driver and shield-bearer, is clearly adapted from earlier chariot warfare. It's just more economical in the number of men and horses. Desso highlights other chariot downsides. If a chariot horse was wounded in battle, the other horses and the chariot crew would easily become useless. Similarly, if a chariot warrior was wounded, the chariot horses and the rest of his crew would lose their fighting efficiency. Chariot effectiveness was also dependent on the presence of flat, open ground. By contrast, cavalry could be deployed on difficult terrain, where chariots were effectively useless. All of these factors led to the increased use of cavalry across the Near East in the early 9th century BC.
During his Western campaign, Asher Nasserpal had recorded impressing the defeated cavalry of Bitbahiani, Azalu, Bitadini, Karkemish, and Patton into his army. And Shalmaneser done the same with the cavalry of Bitadini. So we know that cavalry was increasingly common in the kingdoms of northern Syria. From Shalmaneser's description of the force at Karkar, we know that both King Hadad-Azer of Aram Damascus and King Urahalina of Hamath had cavalry units. By contrast, the kings of the seacoast and the Semitic armies of Israel and Ammon apparently had none, or at least not yet. And again, we should highlight that the Arab contingent under King Gindibu was entirely composed of camel-riding cavalry. If the opposing armies will indulge us for a few more minutes, we should also take an updated look at the prevalence of iron versus bronze. As I noted back in episode C11, Prior to 1000 BC, the weapons and armor being used to forge and defend the new Iron Age kingdoms were likely just as bronze as before the collapse. But in the eastern Mediterranean, the evidence shows a significant expansion of iron use during the 10th and 9th centuries BC, with important production centers in both Cyprus and the Levant. Historian Nathaniel Erbsatulo notes that while iron metallurgy may have developed earlier in Anatolia, there's a reasonable chance that the eastern Mediterranean saw earlier widespread adoption. So it's likely that some of the coalition forces were equipped with iron weapons and armor. But what about the Assyrians? Though they're often considered the quintessential Iron Age kingdom, Evidence of Assyrian iron production is practically non-existent. They certainly wanted it, from at least as far back as the Late Bronze Age, but their main source of iron during Shalmaneser's reign continued to be tribute and plunder. As Erb Satulo notes, 9th century BC Assyrian texts contain numerous references to increasing quantities of iron taken as booty. We also know that by the 8th century BC, iron had virtually supplanted bronze in numerous classes of Assyrian artifacts. At the time of our story, 853, it's reasonable to assume that Assyrian elites had access to iron, though quantities may have been insufficient to equip the entire Assyrian army. So, Scott, this is all great, but what about the Battle of Karkar? You know, the famous battle you've been teasing for the past two and a half episodes? Well, it is famous, and it was certainly massive and extremely hard fought, with around 60,000 heavily motivated troops on each side. And if Hollywood needs a researcher for a star-studded mega-production, please feel free to hit me up. But, well, there's a reason I've been putting it off. Because, unfortunately, in contrast to the battles of Megiddo and Kadesh, we have practically zero details. Instead, what we get is a dubious boast of an overwhelming victory by Shalmaneser III. He relates that, 
I battled with them. I routed them from Karkar to the city of Kilzau, killing 14,000 of their soldiers, raining destruction on them like a dod. I scattered their bodies far and wide and covered the face of the desolate plain with their vast armies. But here's the thing. In all of his various records of the conflict, Shalmaneser highlights taking his defeated enemies' chariots, cavalry, and weapons of war. But it's also worth noting what he doesn't record. He doesn't record besieging or taking any more Syrian cities, capturing any kings, putting anyone under vassalage, or extorting any tribute. Nor did he end up returning to the region for several more years. All of which sounds to me much more like a stalemate. As it happens, another important regional event took place at about this time. A few episodes back, we discussed the inscribed stele of the Moabite king Mesha. In the first part of the text, Mesha relates how the previous Israelite king, Omri, had oppressed the Moabites, an oppression that had continued under his son, King Ahab, the same King Ahab that Shalmaneser records as fighting in the Battle of Karkar. Mesha goes on to relate how, at the urging of his god Chemosh, he began forcefully retaking Moabite cities from Israelite occupation forces. He records his conquest of Madaba, Ataroth, Nebo, and Jahaz, often putting the city's entire population to death as a sacrifice to Chemosh and to Moab. In victory, Mesha notes that I took the vessels of Yahweh, and I hauled them before the face of Chemosh. Now, arguably, if a Moabite revolt had broken out in the run-up to the Battle of Karkar, it's doubtful that Ahab would have felt comfortable just ignoring the threat and marching his army up north. But during his absence, or after his return from Karkar with a weakened Israelite army, both of these seem like ideal occasions for Mesha to try to free Moab. It's also unlikely that it happened much later, because after Karkar, King Ahab of Israel only had one more year left to rule. In fact, he's the first known member of the OG coalition to fall. What happened is this. Ahab joined forces with Jehoshaphat of Judah on a plan to recover the city of Ramoth-Gilead from King Hadad-Azer of Damascus. During the attack, Ahab decided to disguise himself as just one of the troops and took off his royal robes, which apparently did him zero good, because a random arrow struck him anyway between the scale armor and the breastplate. Ahab's chariot driver dragged him off to the sidelines, where he bled out later that day. The king was succeeded by his son, Ahaziah, who fell from a roof and died the next year, upon which the throne passed to his younger brother, Jehoram. And, by the way, their mother, Queen Jezebel, formerly of Tyre, was still very much alive and doing quite well, thanks for asking. 
and she'd continue to do so for the duration of Jehoram's reign. After that, well, that's a story for later. So all this happened in the wake of Karkar. And it's unknown when the intelligence came west that Shalmaneser wasn't coming right back. But it's likely everyone took the occasion to collectively let out their breath. And as reports came in over the next two years that the Assyrian king was fighting in Babylon, people actually may have resumed breathing normally. A few stray inter-kingdom conflicts aside, like Ahab's attack on Ramoth-Gilead, it's clear that the anti-Assyrian coalition was basically kept intact. And according to Shalmaneser's inscriptions, its prime constituent and driving force was Hadad-Azer of Aram-Damascus. It's important to note that apart from Hamath and some kings of the seacoast, it was still predominantly a southern coalition which is what makes this next series of events all the more interesting. By 849 BC, the country lord Sangara of Carchemish had been paying Shalmaneser an exorbitant tribute for the better part of eight years. And, insult to injury, the massive wealth transfer prevented the king from raising his own royal monuments. It was humiliating... It was untenable, and after three years of Shalmaneser not coming back west, Sangara went into revolt. He apparently found a ready ally in his western neighbor, King Hadram of Bitagusi, and they both agreed to withhold Assyrian tribute. Whatever they expected, the response was swift and devastating. In a royal annal recovered from Kalhu, Shalmaneser records that, In my tenth year, I crossed the Euphrates an eighth time. I destroyed, devastated, and set fire to the cities of Sangara of Carchemish. Then I left the cities of the Carchemishian and approached the cities of Hadram, capturing Arni, his royal city. I destroyed, devastated, and set fire to it along with 100 nearby cities. I killed their inhabitants and carried off their spoil. Neither king was captured or killed, nor was the city of Carchemish destroyed, though the burning of Arne did force the transfer of the Bit-Agusi capital to Arpad. But it's the next bit that's really interesting, because Shalmaneser also records that at that time, Hadad-Azer of Syria and Urahalina of Hamath, together with twelve kings of the seacoast, trusted in each other's might and advanced against me, offering battle and combat. Like with the earlier Battle of Karkar, Shalmaneser records that I fought with them and defeated them, taking from them their chariots, cavalry, and weapons of war. Shalmaneser's claims aside, the implications are interesting. Either Shalmaneser marched south after his ruination of Bitagusi, where he faced a similar coalition to four years earlier, somewhere in the kingdom of Hamath, 
Or Hadad Azard learned that Shalmaneser had crossed the Euphrates and decided to march his coalition north and attack the Assyrian army. The latter would be a major development, since it would mean that Hadad Azard decided to go on the offensive and do so outside of his coalition's home territories. Whatever the case, the battle's outcome was another stalemate. But, you know, congratulations, because Shalmaneser's attention was fully refocused on Syria. The following year, 848, the Assyrian king returned. Fragments of various royal inscriptions tell another interesting tale. First, it sounds like the revolts of Sangara of Carchemish and Hadram of Bitagusi were still going strong, and Shalmaneser records destroying dozens, if not hundreds, of each of their cities. He then records that Hadad Azer of Damascus and twelve kings from the land of Hadi stood by each other, but I succeeded in overthrowing them. Now, don't focus too much on the twelve kings part, or the overthrowing part, I guess. According to Shalmaneser, Hadad Azer was now leading a coalition of southern and northern Syrian states possibly a result of his coming to northern Syria's defense the previous year. After this campaign, it took three long years for Shalmaneser to return in force. In 845, he records that, I mustered the people of the whole wide land in countless numbers. I crossed the Euphrates at its flood with 120,000 of my soldiers. The Assyrian king was apparently angling for a major decisive battle. And at least he got the battle part. Once again, Hadad Azer of Damascus and Ura Helena of Hamath, along with twelve kings of the upper and lower seacoast, mustered their numerous armies, countless soldiers, and advanced against me. The numbers being thrown around are likely exaggerated. But the upshot is that Hadad Azer was still leading a vast coalition of northern and southern kingdoms and peoples. And though Shalmaneser again claims total victory, that's starting to ring a bit hollow. For the next two years, Shalmaneser's western campaigns were focused a bit farther north. At some point during 844, he crossed the Euphrates and marched on Malatya, possibly to dissuade them from joining the Syrian rebellion. Shalmaneser records that I accepted the tribute from the Malachian king Lali, silver, gold, lead, and copper. I made my royal image and set it up by the Euphrates. The following year, 843, he records that I went up to Mount Taurus, the Silver Mountain. I attacked Hilaku and Tabal, striking their lands and turning them into mounds and ruins. I trapped the wicked enemy Kate in his capital city. He brought his daughter with her dowry to Kalhu and prostrated himself at my feet. Kate, as you may recall, was the king of Quay who'd been fighting Shalmaneser on and off for the previous 15 years. 
The level of detail suggests that on this occasion, Shalmaneser compelled him into vassalage. Hilaku, which is also mentioned, is the coastal territory just west of Quay. So Shalmaneser's campaigns were clearly expanding in scope. Or maybe he was just tired of banging his head on the rock that was Aram Damascus. The mention of Tabal is also interesting. Tabal was essentially the old Hittite lower land between the Hollis River and coastal Kizawadna. As I previously noted, the region had been mostly isolated from the events of the Bronze Age collapse. It currently hosted a cluster of some two dozen small Neo-Hittite kingdoms, most less than a square mile in size. We'll cover them in detail in future episodes. In both 844 and 843, Syria hadn't been Shalmaneser's only or even main focus. But in 842, the Assyrian king came back in force. Numerous sources record the events. In one, an inscription at the source of the Tigris, Shalmaneser claims to be conqueror from Lake Van to the Mediterranean, from the source of the Tigris to the source of the Euphrates, and from Lake Urmia to the Persian Gulf. Of course, that was just the preamble. The meat of the story involves his clash with the forces of Hadad Azer of Aram Damascus. Shalmaneser claims it's the fourth time they'd fought, though my tally says this makes five. On this occasion, depending on which version you read, the Aramean king was backed by Urahalina of Hamath, along with 15 coastal cities, or 12 kings of the Hittite land, or simply 12 allied princes. The climatic battle apparently took place at a Damascene fortress at Mount Saniru, which Shalmaneser calls a mountain peak at the border of Lebanon. The king records that Hadad Azer was eventually defeated and driven inside the walls of Damascus, after which the Assyrian king ravaged the surrounding countryside, then marched his army to the Mediterranean, where he accepted tribute from the men of Tyre, Sidon, and from Jehu of the house of Omri, which is a thread I will very much pick back up on in a future episode. The details provided appear to suggest that this engagement was different, that the decade-long stalemate had finally been broken to Shalmaneser's advantage. And one entry may explain the primary reason why. Shalmaneser notes that during the campaign, Hadad Azer died, and Hazael, the son of a nobody, seized the Damascene throne which raised the question for pretty much everyone of what the future might hold. Without the Aramean king's forceful leadership, was the defensive coalition doomed to collapse? And was Syria destined for wholesale Assyrian conquest? For the answers, my friends, you'll just need to hold on until the next season of the podcast. In the meantime, if you want to keep things going, you can subscribe to the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. 
I've already got three new mini-episodes posted there, covering the Babylonians, the Phoenicians, and the Assyrians. And another one coming out in two weeks on Shalmaneser's campaign into the Zagros Mountains, where he meets a very early iteration of a very legendary people. I'll continue to post monthly mini-episodes on Patreon between now and the start of the next season. Until then, take care, have a great holiday, and I'll see you all in 2023. Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.